0: Well, you have likely seen a few people already wearing poppies. It is a sign that Remembrance Day is not too, too far away. But this year, the Royal Canadian Legion is doing something a little different. There will still be the poppies that you can wear on your lapel, but there is also going to be a digital poppy. And joining us to talk about this and what it will look like is Danny Martin, Deputy Director of the Royal Canadian Legion. Danny, thank you so much for being with us this morning.
1: You're welcome, Jill.
0: What exactly is the, uh, the digital poppy that is being uh, unveiled this year?
1: Uh, the digital poppy is basically an online presence for uh, remembrance. It's uh, a concept that was developed by our Basno Creative uh, Group. It had all the technical things that the Legion was looking for, including control of the, uh, when it starts and when it ends. So basically, uh, you go uh, online at uh, mypoppy.ca or legion.ca, and then you make a donation. Then it brings you to the site where your poppy's located. Your poppy then is uh, customized by yourself. You can dedicate it to somebody, your name's on it, and then once that's complete, the buttons allow you to share it on your social media.
0: And it just launched on Friday, how has the response been so far, do you know?
1: Oh, the, the response has been really, really uh, It's overwhelming, actually. I think that, that people realize that there's a, a void in communication, uh, face-to-face communication. Your visual, it's uh, getting to be in an online sort of world, especially with the millennials and below. And uh, that's the way to communicate, and that's the way we want to communicate remembrance as well, as in, ad- in addition to the visual standard, uh, traditional copy.
0: And is it a way as well, uh, you said to make it, you make a donation and then get taken to that site. Is there any minimum donation or any amount that is suggested?
1: Uh, there is a suggested amount. It starts at $2 and uh, works its way up. But there's also a uh, separate uh, one where you can actually put in whatever you actually would like to donate. So anything from, I guess, from the cent on up, and uh, that allows you entrance into the site and where you go. Because the philosophy with the legion, even with a traditional property, is they're not sold. They're distributed because we want people to engage in the remembrance period. And donations obviously are accepted, but it's it's same with the digital policy. It's online. You can get it for like next to nothing. Remembrance is important. You can communicate to the rest of your group and people that you're associated with uh, about remembrance.
0: Indeed. And and it's interesting, too, the the fact, and I know there's a, a couple of celebrities that have done this and dedicated it to, to certain people. Uh, is that something, too, that you find? Are people able to connect a bit better if they have someone in mind that they're going to, to download their poppy, make it their own a bit, and then dedicate it to someone specific?
1: Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, a close personal connection is always a bigger incentive to uh, actually do something. And sort of one thing that surprised me on Friday, which was the start of the poppy campaign and the release of the digital poppy, was one lady <coughs> excuse me was on online, uh, and she got twenty poppies because she had twenty people that are uh, veterans uh, that have come and gone and that she wanted to remember, and so she donated twenty times and got twenty uh, digital poppies instead of the across medium so that was something kind of un- unexpected, but I think there is, as you just said, uh, if you have a purse quote uh, a close personal connection, you're more inclined to dedicate it, but that's not a necessity either. Maybe you just want to thank all the veterans, so therefore you just get a poppy and don't dedicate it to anybody.
0: Mm-hmm, indeed. Uh, there's always uh, a conversation and I think a little bit of confusion when it comes to the time where we wear our poppies. Uh, the joke being that they're designed that way. We're talking about the traditional ones. That they're designed <laughs> to fall off, so you have to keep yes. getting them every time you see somebody uh, standing, <laughs> uh, distributing them. Uh, but there's always the conversation about, are you allowed to put a pin through the middle to keep it on? Are you allowed to do things to it? And I think this will probably Prompt that conversation as well is that are you allowed to change it to modify it? Or or, because I think there's also that idea that by doing that, it's a sign of disrespect.
1: Oh, absolutely. And uh, again, uh, the Legion, uh, who holds holds the uh, poppy trademark in Canada, and the you know, the the trademark, what the standard poppy looks like, Nancy in context of remembrance is a trademark for uh, the poppy. So basically, uh, the protocol is nothing goes over across the top of the poppy. So there's the black center, and that goes in, and uh, that's it. And somebody else chooses to use, like, a Canadian flag or something, that would be incorrect. But the good news is the lead now provides a, st- a center butterfly clasp that you can get separately if you want to keep your poppy on longer and not uh, uh, prick yourself.
0: All right, and, and how, does, uh, how does that work?
1: Well, it's just like you're, it's, you take out the uh, center pin of the poppy. Mm-hmm. The black center is uh, more of a metal Thing, insert it just like you do with the other pins that you can get push it through your clothing and then you have the butterfly clasp on the back end you know that little thing you squeeze together mm-hmm. keeps it on a single uh, you know like nail that's now available so therefore uh, that's a little progress as well
0: right so th- and that's okay to do that because I think and, and people don't want to be disrespectful they want to make sure they're they're following the rules but that one's okay then to put that through the poppy.
1: Uh, well, it's going to look identical to the center as it looks right now. So it's, it's made to look, be identical to your standard pen, And yes, that's absolutely perfect.
0: All right. Uh, is there a goal as far as the fundraising campaign, or is it, uh, I mean, one of the other things that we we often hear from people when, when poppies are being distributed is that nobody carries cash anymore. So you want to make a donation, but if you don't have cash with you, it's not like you can do it on an ATM card at the at the point where someone's standing outside of a store. Uh, is that an obstacle as far as when it, when it comes to fundraising?
1: Okay, well, I'll just go back to your original question. It says that there is uh, actually, there's we have two uh, focuses we like to do with the poppy campaign one is yes the uh, donation to the uh, poppy fund which by the way wherever th- they're donated uh, those funds go back to the community where they were gathered in to support the veterans and families there but the other thing is the remembrance aspect of it and the education purposes it's not just a uh you know a holiday for some it's actually here's the poppy take a look at this remember what has co- uh, gone before Remember how you got here, remember who did it for you, and remember never to do it again. So those two aspects are very important. As for the distribution of the poppies, we have 1,400-plus branches across the country, 275,000-plus 3- members, but the fact exists that we can't cover everything. And I'm going to quote Don Cherry again. I've been doing this on several <laughs> interviews. That last year on Hockey Night in Canada, he said he's walking into, his, into the CBC studios and as he's going down the street And he gets up to the studios and he's on air on on the Hockey Night in Canada, his broadcasting says, I'm totally ashamed that I just came here from wherever he was coming from, walk all the way up and see one person wearing a poppy. And that's just an example of we have to get the reach out. Uh, You know, larger urban centres, the centre, they're hard to access. There's 1,400 branches, but there's thousands and thousands of communities that don't have a uh, presence there. So the digital poppy will allow us to spread the word, better access, and, uh, and continue on the traditional political campaign as well.
0: Uh, well, and definitely, and it really goes to, to show how to, uh, you know, to kind of change or adapt to that. I noticed the same thing. I had that conversation with somebody last year walking in downtown Vancouver, and it was early November, and walking three or four city blocks and, and literally did not see another poppy, which I thought was really strange.
1: Yeah, it's a matter of access, uh, accessibility and uh, resources you have at hand. I uh, Remember, like I said, we have over 275,000 members, but not all of them are out there collecting poppies. And uh, again, their reach is limited to their own communities and their abilities and the time that they have. So uh, it's not unusual, uh, Jill, what you just said and what Don Cherry said. So that's a, this is an opportunity to reach out further than we can actually physically do through the digital medium.
0: And uh, and just one more thing you mentioned, too, that to when you make a donation, that money stays in the community. Can you yeah. d- explain a little bit again where, where the money goes and what the money is used for?
1: Okay, well, it goes anywhere. Well, the primary focus for the Poppy Fund is uh, for veterans and their families and the assistance needed that the government doesn't provide. So that's right out there. And they go into programs such as research for post-traumatic stress disorder uh, development of different programs to assist veterans, uh, investing in uh, programs that uh, veterans actually can overcome some of the difficulties they had when they returned from uh, conflict. There's the poppy and uh, not the poppy, sorry, the poetry and literary con- contest, which uh, supports remembrance aspects across the country in schools and abroad, educational material uh, like that. So the main focus is the veterans and the families and uh, almost as high up on the scale as the remembrance aspect of it. So for, like, the national ceremony, the Royal Canadian Legion is the one that does the national ceremony. So they, some of those funds go to actually making sure that that uh, happens every year. And uh, if you want to access where actually all these funds go to specifically, they're online on our poppy manual at legion.ca, and it just lists out all the uses of the poppy fund.
0: All right. Well, excellent uh, information, and people can go and take part in the uh, digital poppy at the traditional poppy as well. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this today. Appreciate uh, you spending some time with us.
1: Uh, thanks, Jill. Have a good day.
0: All right. You too. That is uh, Danny Martin. He is the deputy director at the Royal Canadian Legion. And again, if you want to go to that website, uh, to the digital poppy go to mypoppy.ca it uh, launched on friday so you can go there right now if you like and it will be going all the way up to november 11th you will of course be seeing people as well legion members outside various drug stores liquor stores what have you uh, save on Foods, safeways grocery stores Uh, you'll see them out there with their uh, poppy distribution as well well, we have uh, been talking a fair amount about health the last couple of days. There is another health show. This one is taking place at the Vancouver uh, Convention Centre. It's been taking place all weekend, the Vancouver Health Show. And one of the exhibitors, uh, presenters at the show, Orsha Magyar, who is also a contributor to... Uh, global television and talking about brains the brain health uh, what goes into that and things that we might not often think about and orsha joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this thank you so much for being with us oh it's my pleasure thanks for having me uh, what exactly are you uh, or did you discuss as far as brain science and overall health with the brain which we don't often think about We don't usually think about it. We think about
2: especially certainly food impacting the brain is kind of a newer thing. Um, Yesterday, I gave a talk on the brain food revolution, which is really what my company and I have been doing for the last 10 years, educating the public on how what we eat has such a beautiful ability to impact how we think how we feel, and ultimately how we, how we perform. So yesterday we went through kind of what the science is saying about the top five nutrients that you need to be eating for brain and mental health. Uh, what are the top five? <laughs> the top five, well, where the science is at in terms of something that's not overhyped or overgeneralized is going to be your omega-3s, definitely, and especially EPA and DHA coming at you from fish, or if you're vegan or allergic, coming at you from algae. They're going to be your B vitamins, your magnesium, your vitamin D, ultra important, especially as we're heading into the winter months. And then something new, a new word from my science crowd called psychobiotics. And in fact, I'm giving an entire talk about that at today's show at 1130. But psychobiotics means probiotics, which most of your followers have probably heard of. Those are the good gut bugs, but also what they are eating, prebiotics. So psychobiotics are probiotics plus prebiotics for your brain and mental health.
0: And and how do you know? Because it can be a bit overwhelming for people um, to to try and introduce these things. And there's so many different products and brands and such. How do you know if you're getting something that's actually uh, making a difference?
2: I know. So it's so it's so hyped because, you know, what you're eating for brain health has become really hot these last few years. It's frustrating. We get patients in all the time. They're frustrated. They come in and they dump out a backpack full of stuff they spent hundreds of dollars on and they don't know if they work. So the biggest thing that I teach people to look for if you're buying supplements is to look for something called third party tested. And what that means is that somebody outside of your company, someone that's not on your payroll, has come in and independently made sure what you're claiming is on the bottle is in your pill.
0: Hmm. And, and you can trust that that's that's a legitimate thing and, and, and that what you're getting is the, the real deal? It's
2: illegal. It's a federal offense if you're saying, if you're putting on there that you're third party tested. So we, we hope that we can trust that.
0: Hopefully, yes. And how do you know when you list through the top five and, and mm-hmm. people can say, okay, well, omega-3 is fish. I can do mm-hmm. that. Uh, but mm-hmm. then how do you how do you kind of make sure you're getting, you know how much you need and you're getting a bit of everything that you need?
2: Well, that's, that's the thing. So I'm a neuroscientist first and foremost, and then became a nutritionist later in my career. And that's it. Like often in the nutrition world, we tell you, okay, you're depressed eat some fish? Well, from a neuroscience perspective, that doesn't really gel with me because I want dosing. So, for example, if you're interested in omega-3s for depression, I would be going on to my medical databases. I use PubMed every day and I would see that, okay, for your depression, you need 1,000 milligrams of EPA specifically a day. So, we would be recommending and prescribing supplement doses based on the actual research. You know, if you have a healthy, happy brain, I want you eating fish, Fatty fish, two times a week. But if you're sick, we're going to go deeper, and we're going to look at dosages.
0: And how do you know your body's absorbing what it needs to? (laughs) That's a great point. And so to keep on to the topic of fats, you can
2: very quickly see if your body's not absorbing. And this is kind of graphic and kind of embarrassing, but I encourage people to look into the toilet bowl. Because if you're not absorbing your fat, guess what? It's going to come out the other end, and you'll see the fat floating on top of the the water.
0: Hmm. (laughs) It's mm-hmm. not the most appetizing uh, sounding know, thing, as but... As your listeners are eating <laughs> breakfast, let's talk about this. <laughs> so, so you'll see,
2: especially with the case of fat, you'll see if you're not absorbing. And also with other foods, if they're coming through and you can still see that's a malabsorption issue and something you want to you work at. And the best way to work on that
0: is fixing your gut health, really focusing on gut health to make sure that it absorbs the, the nutrients from, from your food. Exactly. I, I, that was my next question then. Okay, if you've, yeah. you've discovered there's a problem, I, I guess yeah. the next thing would be, okay, how do I fix this?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one thing that we're seeing on a spike is something called leaky gut syndrome, which I'm not sure if, if you've heard of. But it's funny, in my world, in the medical world, up until about five years ago, we used to think it was kind of a joke. Like, okay, those holistic hippies, they're talking about leaky gut. Until neuroscientists started looking at it. And seeing that it was a real thing. And it's funny, in my world, we call it porous bowel syndrome. And it means the same darn thing as leaky gut. And it's when, for whatever reason, you're not properly um, digesting your food, your small intestine's job is still to absorb it. So it tries to suck it through the intestinal lining. And guess what? It causes leaks and it causes holes. And those cause all sorts of issues and symptoms when you eat and pain and ultimately malabsorption of your food. And nutritional deficiencies. So, yeah, this poor poor bowel syndrome is a real thing and we need to focus it by eating anti-inflammatory foods, maybe taking a few supplements to heal the gut lining like L-glutamine or aloe vera juice. We've got a whole prescription for for leaky gut syndrome because now we know it's it's a real thing.
0: And uh, how long does it take to turn things around in that, Mm. you know, people, we have very short attention spans and we'd like to see results immediately. Myself included, yeah. (laughs) So how long does it take if somebody realizes, yeah, there's issues, I I know I'm not as healthy as I should be. Yeah. uh, But you don't want to wait months to see results. No, and that's
2: a thing too at Neurotrition, because I am medical, we're used to the magic pill. So for me, again, I'm not that practitioner where it's like, you're going to see me for two years and then we're going to use our imaginations and we're going to see some results. <laughs> so we see we can get results in as little as 48 hours if you really adhere to what we're prescribing and we can start to see things turn around very quickly but then ultimately it's about how unhealthy were you when you first came in to see us. It can take a few months. But yeah, we work so hard to get results fast because that builds trust and you're actually going to comply and believe what me and my team are telling you if you can right away start seeing changes. So we're all about results quickly.
0: And how do you deal with with, with skeptics? Uh, we're do, we're talking mm. this morning. Yesterday, I was assigned. I, I went to the the Goop Wellness Summit in Vancouver. There's okay. certainly uh, some controversy there. <laughs> how do you deal with skeptics who who, who might Wait. look at this and think, "What are you talking about"? Yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow's got some skeptics. And yeah,
2: so the way that I deal with skeptics, and I'm very blessed in a sense because I don't get that much skepticism due, I think, to my neuroscience background. So even when I launched this very holistic company nine and a half years ago, I was very um, firmly a believer of bringing in a science council. So I have a team of leading neuroscientists in who work in the areas of brain research that I translate so stress emotional eating food addictions I got the top people in Canada and a few in the states to sit on my science council and they vet everything I say everything that I write about so that's that's really important and the other thing that I'm really careful on is really sticking to what the science is saying even though sometimes it might not be as cool or sexy some of my colleagues say things like this food is gonna treat your kids mental illness we never would say that. We stick to what the science is saying and take more of a conservative approach, but a more I think ethical and honest approach. So
0: that's how. <laughs> All right. And yeah. and do you find are we paying more attention to the brain as part mm-hmm. of the overall health system rather than the 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 control center? Yeah, I think we're starting to finally recognize in our culture
2: that body body and brain, body and mind are actually connected. I mean, in other cultures around the world, they've known this forever. Um, and they laugh at me when I give these lectures and say, OK, we've known this forever, but now science is finally showing you. So you're talking about the body-mind connection. So, yeah, thankfully, I'm so happy to see we're paying attention. I mean, the research on gut-brain axis there's new science coming out daily.
0: So that's a true example of the body and mind and how interconnected and related they are. All right. So, well, you uh, And you mentioned, too, you're going to be talking about this uh, later today. Yes. Yes, yeah, so people should come on down, 11.30, my talk at the
2: health show, all about psychobiotics. So the probiotics and their food, the prebiotics for your mental health, and going through all the science on on that.
0: All right, sounds uh, very, very uh, informative. Uh, Orsha, mm-hmm. we'll leave it there. We're out of time, but thank you for taking some time with us Thanks this morning. Too. Oh, gosh, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, you're welcome. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. That is uh, Orsha Magyar, a contributor to Global Television. She's also here in Vancouver at the uh, Vancouver Health Show. And again, you can check it out on their website if you want to learn more about that talk and uh, the rest of the schedule. Uh, Just go to the Vancouver Health Show uh, online, healthshows.com, and all of the information is there. Uh, When we come back, we're going to talk taxes and why one, also to do with health, uh, is making people feel a little queasy. We'll discuss that when we return. We have talked about this a little bit in the past on this program, the employer health tax. And if you are a small business owner, if you have a payroll of 500 grand or more, you likely know all about it. My next guest has written extensively about this as well. And Chris Sims, who is the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, joins me on the line. Chris, great to have you back on the show. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me on. What are you, what are your main concerns about this? And you've uh, outlined them once again about uh, this new tax that is coming into play. Well, there's a few concerns uh, that are pretty heavy, especially for
3: job creators in this province. Uh, number one, it's uh, double tax scoop. So, They're getting rid of the MSP very slowly, the medical services premium, something that the CTF wanted gone anyway. But the problem is is that it's still around. It's at 50% of its strength. And so lots of employers already pay this for their employees, and it's still going to be there come January at 50% of its strength. But now those same employers are getting hit with a brand-new employer health tax, and they need to pay both. They're not getting credit for what they're already paying. They're not getting exempt based on the MSP rate that's already there. It's just going to be a form of double taxation. And so that's hitting a lot of them very hard. And number two, it's just the the tax itself. The employer health tax, if you take a really hard look at it, is really going after job creators. And we're really worried that it's going to strangle growth and that it's going to strangle promotion uh, in businesses. And then there's the third element that a lot of your listeners may not realize is that they're going after cities and towns, too. So most cities and towns naturally have a staff payroll of more than $500,000 based on the services they need to provide. But they now are going to be subject to this new payroll tax. And where do town councils get their money from? From property owners, of course. And so they're going to be either cutting services or trying desperately to find savings within their city and town budgets or jacking up property taxes to pay these provincial tax bills.
0: And do you think, will it, will it level out once, uh, because I, I think it's a bit of a head scratcher to why it's coming in at the same time of the MSP, if, if it's uh, supposed to be replacing it, uh, why they're paying both at the same time. Once the MSP is gone, will, it, will that do anything to, to relieve the burden on the businesses? It'll lighten it up a little bit because it won't be double taxation, but then they'll be
3: stuck with the employer health tax until we finally get that one gone. Um, and so it'll be a little bit less unfair, but it'll still be a heavy tax burden. Um, to give you an example of how much this is going to cost. so. A lot of people may think, oh, well, you know, half a million dollars, that's, you know, a really high payroll tax. I won't have to pay it. But keep in mind that all of this money has to come from somewhere. So if you take a look at at the high end, how much they're going to be charging people, if you've got, say, a, a payroll of more than $1.5 million in the province of British Columbia, you've got a 1.95% tax. So to give a concrete example, say you've got, a province-wide, well-known, name-brand team of plumbers, Okay, say, just for argument's sake, that there are 40 of them, and they all make only $75,000 per year, which is on the low end of the scale for that tradesperson. But for math's sake, say there's a team of 40 plumbers, they all make $75,000 per year. That payroll is actually $3 million. And with this new tax, they're going to be coughing up close to $60,000 brand new per year. And to us, that means that they're not going to be taking on that new apprentice. That means they won't be giving those tradespeople the raises that they were hoping for. They won't be taking on new employees because they're going to be strangling this growth. And keep in mind also that this, um, this new age EHT kicks in at the $500,000 payroll uh, threshold. So, if you're hovering, say at 4.99, are you going to take on two brand new employees with full salary? No, because then that will kick you up into the higher tax bracket.
0: Hmm. Uh, so, uh, so your argument there is as well that it, it would it kind of strangles growth. In that, why would you strive to grow if it's going to end up just costing you a ton more money in this tax?
3: Yes, exactly. It's it's literally a job creators tax. And so that's why we're all just scratching our heads saying, why are you guys going after people who literally create jobs and create work uh, throughout the province of British Columbia? And with the other hand, you're reaching into the pockets of property taxpayers. What was really interesting at the most recent municipalities meeting that they held a few weeks ago there in Whistler is that all of the mayors from across British Columbia came out and said, we can't afford this. Why are you suddenly, without consultation, sticking us With this huge tax bill, you're downloading a taxation responsibility onto the backs of municipalities, and they backed off on school boards, if you can believe it, they were actually going to try to go after not-for-profits, like hospitals and school boards, and they backed off on that but they didn't back off on cities and towns. So town councils are getting stuck with this bill. Interesting, I'm hearing that apparently, I don't know if it's now or starting in January, the city of Surrey is actually pulling it out in their tax form, saying, don't blame us, but here's your provincial tax bill, property owner, and this is how much you need to pay, because they just don't know where they're going to find this money. Well, and
0: you, and you wrote about that as well, too, Surrey estimating. It's going it's to cost them almost, what is it, $5 million?
3: Yeah yeah it's it's a staggering amount of money. Can you imagine just without consultation overnight turning around the Victoria turning to cities and towns and saying by the way Find a million dollars, uh, you know. Find you know more than a million dollars. Just make it happen. It's unbelievable. And so we're bracing everybody for January when this new tax kicks in because it's going to make everything cost more. I heard actually the other day from a property manager, and I hadn't even thought of it this way. He owns a bunch of rental units in the capital region around Victoria, and he said, "I need to pay tradespeople all the time to come and maintain my property. If all of a sudden these employers are getting nailed with this with this new uh, employer health tax they're going to up their rates so i'm going to have to pay more to maintain my property so i'm going to have to up my rent so this money always comes from somewhere and we
0: really wish that they had thought this through Especially because we were told and it was an election promise that the elimination of the MSP and I think it's another reminder that nothing is ever eliminated. It might be taken away from one place, but we are always as taxpayers going to be hit with it somewhere else.
3: Yes, exactly. Instead of actually looking at it very clearly and seeing if they can find this money and seeing if they can reduce their spending somewhere else, stop wasting it on frivolous things like studying the basic income idea with millions of dollars wasted on it, things like that. Instead of going line by line and finding that money and actually paying for the health care that is their responsibility to manage, they instead created a brand new tax. And they campaigned on getting rid of the MSP.
0: They didn't campaign on creating the employer health tax. You're absolutely right. All right, we'll leave it there. We're out of time. Chris, always good to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for caring about this because sometimes math can sound boring, (laughs) but when you get down to taxes, it's just money out of our pockets. Thank you so much. Thanks for being with us on this Sunday morning. Well, the details of the uh, killing of Tory Stafford are difficult, to say the least. Uh, An Ontario girl uh, who was murdered, uh, brutally, brutally murdered. And it was a story that once again got into the news headlines when her father uh, spoke to the media, outraged that uh, one of the killers, Terry Lynn McClintock, who pleaded guilty back in 2010 to first-degree murder, had been transferred to a much lower-security facility. And it's raising a lot of questions about our corrections in this country and the rules around corrections. And my next guest has written about that and is joining me on the line now to talk a bit more. Scott Newark is a former Alberta Crown Prosecutor. He's also served as the founding president of the Canadian Resource Centre for Victims of Crime and the executive officer of the Canadian Police Association. And Scott, thank you so much for joining us this morning.
4: Hi,
0: how are you? I'm very well. How are you? Good, thank you. Uh, this is uh, an incredibly difficult story yes. to talk about. The details are, are beyond horrific. Uh, what is your take? And I know you've written about this. When we look at, at the outrage over Terry Lynn McClintock being transferred, what, what are your key points in, in what has happened here and what we need to be asking about and what we need to be addressing?
4: Yeah, I I think probably at the core of all of this is, um, in effect, the way that the uh, system literally is re-victimizing the the parents of this little girl. Uh, They didn't find out. Our system does not require the revelation of information directly. Uh, They only uh, actually found out because after the uh, security classification had been downgraded and after the transfer had been approved, and the only reason they were notified is because of a requirement uh, that is in the uh, legislation uh, that when the offender is seeking early release. And so this per- this person, the killer, was actually, had already been transferred to the lodge and wanted to get a, a weekly uh, uh, day passes, and that's when the father found out. Because by law, they were required to be notified about that. But by law, they were not required to be notified that her security classification had been downgraded or that because she was self-identifying as Aboriginal that she'd been transferred to this facility. And so I think that's what probably got most people's attention originally. And it's really um, illustrative as well, too, is that when victims are provided that kind of information, we described it as... Uh, the victims uh, deserve a voice, not a veto, but a voice, that creates some as- uh, systemic accountability that, believe me, uh, from my uh, career in the uh, criminal justice system, is something that is very definitely needed at Correctional Service of Canada.
0: And the fact that this was even able to happen, I think, is what a lot of people are questioning, uh, because uh, rightly so. People you would think that you don't need to know all the ins and outs of the justice system to think if someone has pleaded guilty to a first-degree murder charge, they go to jail for life. But that's clearly not the case in this that's case. Correct.
4: That's correct. Welcome to Canada. Uh, we have made some improvements. Don't get me wrong. We have made some improvements over the years. Uh, but uh, life uh, sentence doesn't mean life. It means a fixed uh, parole and eligibility date. And up until a few years ago, it even meant that you could apply for early, early release after only 15 years. Uh, and And your uh, pretrial custody uh, time before you were convicted was deducted from the time before you could op- apply for parole. It was known as the say one thing, do another justice system and that uh, i 've I've dealt with uh, victims' families uh, uh, and law enforcement it It creates a sense of betrayal that our justice system you know is supposedly governed by these principles and I think that is also reflective in this case is that You know, our sentencing system is guided by, uh, you can look at any uh, court of appeal to uh, judgments across the province. It's now even in our criminal code. It's got foundational principles like denunciation of certain conduct, deterrence of the offender, general deterrence, and rehabilitation that, you know, is appropriate. But you don't want to have... The internal mechanisms of the correction system in effect contradicting and undermining those basic principles and what 's happened in this case I think has touched a nerve amongst many Canadians because that 's exactly what people feel
0: uh, there was a bill in the past <clears throat> excuse me in the past that would have made sure uh, that people that were sentenced to life without parole uh, or parole eligibility for a certain amount of time uh, for murder uh, that they wouldn 't that they would have to serve out those life sentences and that they wouldn't be allowed to be transferred to lower security uh, prisons or lower, lowered security uh, facilities. Uh, it was uh, a tabled bill, but it never passed. Why did it not pass?
1: Uh,
4: because the uh, I think there was probably a view that it might have been uh, uh, considered to be unconstitutional, a violation of the charter. What did happen, however, which is a good idea, was that people who were convicted of multiple murders, they can now receive consecutive parole and eligibility periods. So, uh, for example, uh, the guy that uh, shot the uh, three uh, Moncton police officers, uh, Jason Bork, he's he's serving uh, consecutive parole and eligibility periods. He is not eligible for parole for 75 years. There's also some restrictions uh, uh, in terms of uh, or possibility of restrictions, and this will apply to the Paul Bernardo case the next time he applies, where the parole board can, in effect, say that the regular rules of you're allowed to have your parole reconsidered every two years, it's extended to every five years so that families who have to attend these hearings are not re-victimized further. But this is more of a, um, I think this case is, is important because it reveals more about the systemic operation that none of us hear about, because, you know, it's obviously a behind-closed-door environment, where the uh, Correctional Service of Canada pretty much follows its uh, its own agenda as to how it uh, does things, and that's why the, I think in uh, it is incredibly important that there be some kind of a systemic accountability and personally although I, I don't agree that you know uh, what was originally suggested that the you know, the minister should just direct that she be transferred back. This should be done according to the rule of law. But instead of uh, what Minister Goodale do, did, which was having Correctional Service of Canada essentially investigate itself, this should be something that an independent entity like the uh, federal victims' ombudsman uh, should be directed. And I, I think given a statutory mandate, such as what we had when I was with the Ontario uh, Office for Victims of Crime, so you could have independent review because that kind of review... Also tends to produce, in my experience, uh, better performance by the institution itself.
0: Hmm. Is it is it also in this case uh, made more complicated in that uh, she uh, she uh, the um, the person convicted or the person guilty uh, of the first degree murder uh, of Tory Stafford uh, was was transferred to a healing lodge and identifies yeah. as Aboriginal.
4: Yeah, self identifies. We permit that in our policy. And I'll, I'll tell you something. Nobody figures out. Uh, how best to exploit a system better than the bad guys. And I think this may be something that uh, is relevant as well, too, to justify a return to the regular facility. As I look through the legislation and the regulations, and they are incredibly complex and incredibly detailed, uh, it appears to me that the consent of the indigenous community on in which the Healing Lodge is located is required, and that wasn't done in this case. The uh, chief of the uh, First Nations uh, Territory is quite clear about that when he said, like, you know, nobody ever asked us about this, and we've got uh, part of this facility, it's a, a supposedly mixed minimum and medium security facility, which frankly means it's a minimum security facility. They've got, they've got their own kids there with, of, of uh, the people who were there. And he said, you know, we may not have agreed to this. So I think that is something that also needs to be revisited to make sure That if if this is done, you know, uh, and I think legitimately to provide special kinds of uh, rehabilitation services for indigenous offenders, uh, if you're going to give it to somebody like this, that means that's one less space for an indigenous offender.
0: Mm-hmm. It also raises the question too. It isn't the whole point. If we're talking about restorative justice and going into a facility like this, it's, it's exactly for that. It's a, it's about rehabilitation and it's about that. It's not, it's not about somebody using the system because who wouldn't want to rather go to a communal condominium type setting rather than a razor wire maximum security prison?
4: Yeah, although, you know what, the reporting, um, uh, since this got into the news, it turns out that the facility that she was in, it did have those features, but it also had sort of another kind of a comfy uh, little wing that she was in as well, too. And, you know, she has just essentially said, I want to go to an even less restrictive facility. And as I say, um, what's important here is that the only way the family knew about it, and thus the rest of Canada knew about it, is because she was actually seeking, you know, uh, temporary absences away from the facility. So the more light that gets shone on this entire process, the better off we all are.
0: So where do we go from here? Because as you said, this particular case across the country has touched a nerve. People are asking questions. It's been debated by our federal politicians. Where do we go from here?
4: Well, the uh, minister, after originally describing it as being uh, the, the crime that the, uh, Ms. McClintick committed as being, quotation mark, bad practices, unbelievable. Um, he finally uh, backtracked and ordered uh, CS, Correctional Service of Canada to conduct a review of what had actually taken place and whether there were specific recommendations. Uh, that was about a month ago. That review should have taken all of a couple of days. Uh, but that is what is uh, uh, sort of uh, the next stage on the horizon on this thing, is that uh, Correctional Service of Canada will presumably report back on what actually took place, the government will have to decide whether or not there should be changes on the specific case and as well, whether some of the changes, including... And that's why in the, uh, the paper that I wrote with the McDonnell-Laurie Institute, and because of the way, what I do, I included some specific suggestions in relation to policy changes that should come out of uh, this case. And that's the way we should, in my experience, we should look at this stuff. When these cases uh, uh, emerge and we get, uh, gain awareness of them, Rather even than as a finger-pointing exercise, we should be taking them as a lessons-learned exercise. How can we improve the system based on what we've learned from this case?
0: All right, Scott, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thank you so much. appreciate you coming on the show this morning. Okay. That is Scott Newark. He is a former Alberta Crown prosecutor. He's also served as a founding president of the Canadian Resource Centre for Victims of Crime and uh, many other uh, roles as well. If you want to read his piece, and it is definitely worth the read, uh, it is a commentary that has been published. It's a McDonald laurier Institute publication. You can find it online if you want to uh, give that a read as well. Stick with us. We'll take a short break here on CKNW.